Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at American diplomacy in the Middle East. I'm joined by Martin Indyk, a former US diplomat who has extensive experience in Middle East peace negotiations. He served as US ambassador to Israel, and he was also President Obama's special envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. Over 200 people died in the latest round of fighting between Israelis and Palestinians, with the casualties overwhelmingly on the Palestinian side. And with fighting breaking out between Jews and Arabs within Israel itself, there was even briefly talk of potential civil war. Now a ceasefire is in place, the rockets, riots and bombing have stopped, and the Biden administration has sent Antony Blinken, US Secretary of State, to the region. But does America still want to play a decisive role in the Middle East? On his trip to Israel, Antony Blinken did what many other American diplomats have done before him. He pledged to seek peace in the Middle East and reiterated America's firm support for Israel. The United States fully supports Israel's right to defend itself against attacks, such as the thousands of rockets fired by Hamas indiscriminately against uh, Israeli civilians. But Blinken also sought to rebuild ties with the Palestinians, announcing an increase in aid and a reopening of a U.S. consulate in Jerusalem that deals with the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank. Back in the United States, the politics of the issue may be changing. In the powerful progressive wing of the Democratic Party, support for the Palestinian cause and denunciation of Israeli actions in Gaza have become routine. Here's Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. And the United States must acknowledge its role in the injustice and human rights violations of Palestinians. This is not about both sides. This is about an imbalance of power. President Biden comes from an older and more traditional wing of the Democratic Party. He is sticking pretty firmly to the standard pro-Israel position. But Biden has departed from tradition in one important respect. Unlike previous Democratic Party presidents from Carter to Clinton, he's shown little interest in getting involved in the Middle East peace process. Perhaps there's no process to get involved in. When I got Martin Indyk on the line, I asked him if the latest round in the conflict had actually changed anything. I don't think it's changed very much at all, unfortunately. And that is the nature of this conflict between Israel and Hamas, periodic exchanges of rocket fire and Israeli bombardments. The Israeli army seems confident that they've set back Hamas a long way. So they're hoping, they don't put a number on it, but I think five years of quiet. But that's all it is. It's just a hope that by taking down Hamas's infrastructure and taking out its military commanders, that it'll take them a while to rebuild, but they don't have any expectation that the rebuilding won't happen or that there's some political off-ramp 
that could head this conflict in a direction towards resolution. Do you think the Israelis even think in terms of a resolution at this stage? And sort of supplementary to that, I mean, one thing that people say might have been different about this round was the outbreak of violence within Israel itself, Israeli Arab communities rioting and so on, and that that might change Israel's approach. Do you see any sign of that? Yes, I I do think that's different, that it's really unprecedented since the foundation of Israel 70 years ago, this kind of intercommunal violence within Israel between Jews and Arabs. And I think it highlights a trend that has been developing for some time, which is a, a growing sense of resentment in the Arab sector in discrimination, combined with a feeling on their part, that is the Arab citizens of Israel and their leadership, that it's time to get their fair share using their political leverage in the Israeli political system to demand uh, better policing in their communities and more resources. And hopefully this conflict now, with the way it's spread into Israel, has highlighted the necessity to deal with those demands. The related trend was the moving of the Israeli Arab political parties into the mainstream, such as that now with the attempt to form a government, both Netanyahu and his opponents have been looking to an Arab Islamist party to make up the number of seats that would enable them to form a government. And so if that happens, that a government is formed dependent on Arab votes, that will also accelerate the process of addressing these kinds of concerns. But I think that the Israelis have had a real wake-up call in this regard, and I hope that that leads to addressing this problem that's been festering for a long time. But of course, as you point out, it's a very important part of the problem, but it's not the whole part, because that remains the, the question of what happens with the occupied territories, with West Bank, with Gaza. I noticed that in your writing, you still talk about the need to resuscitate the two-state solution, an Israeli state, a Palestinian state. Many analysts have given up on that and say it's dead. Um, Why do you still think it can be done? The reason I think it needs to be done, I don't think it can be done at the moment, but I do think it needs to be done, is because there is no other solution. Everything else is a recipe for continued conflict. A Hamas-style one-state solution that doesn't involve a Jewish state of Israel is not going to be acceptable to the Israelis. And a uh, Israeli right-wing one-state solution where Palestinians have autonomy and Israel rules over all of the land of Israel is not going to end the conflict either. So eventually, both sides, I think, will come back to believing that in the need to solve the problem and therefore in the need to make the kinds of painful and difficult compromises that could achieve an end to the conflict. But as I said, we can't get there from here. We know what it looks like. It's been negotiated at length, and I've been involved in those negotiations over many years. But the circumstances are just not ripe for that. Hamas rules in Gaza, the Palestinian Authority rules nominally in the West Bank. Any concessions made by Abu Mazen, the head of the Palestinian Authority, 
for a final status agreement would be immediately condemned by Hamas. So on the Palestinian side, you've got division. On the Israeli side, you don't have anybody advocating for a two-state solution at the moment. Four elections in two years, not one party even raised the Palestinian issue. So there's going to have to be political change on both sides before the conditions will be ripe enough to try again to resolve the conflict. But in the end, when we get to that point, it will be on the basis of a two-state solution because there is no other solution. But as you point out, I mean, there there isn't any major political party in Israel advocating for that right now. On the other hand, you do have quite a lot of right-wing and far-right parties that are talking openly about annexation of the West Bank, kind of the opposite of a two-state solution. Do you think that trend continues to gain ground? And since, as you say, you know the main parties well, I mean, what do you think in the end Netanyahu in his heart of hearts wants? Is he an annexationist? Well, you are right that the annexation movement got a big boost under Donald Trump's presidency, but it was stopped because of the normalization process. When the UAE said, we'll give Israel full normalization, but there has to be no annexation in return, that really stopped the process in its tracks. And there is a commitment to the UAE that Israel will not go ahead with annexation over the next three years, I think. The second part of that, why annexation is not likely to go ahead, is that now we have a Biden administration, and the Biden administration is not going to accept annexation. It will create a real crisis in the relationship between the United States and Israel. And as a result of this latest conflict, I think that President Biden has banked a lot of credit with Israelis. And I don't think that Netanyahu, coming to his motivations, will want a confrontation with Joe Biden heading into potentially a fifth election. Is he an annexationist? No. Netanyahu is not. It's not uh, critical to his vision. He doesn't believe in a solution. He just believes in a kind of continuation of the status quo in which there's basically a three-state solution where Hamas rules in Gaza and notwithstanding the conflict that we've just come through, he has no intentions of removing Hamas's rule from Gaza. Uh, The Palestinian Authority, in his mind, rules over enclaves in the West Bank while settlement activity continues. And Israel has overall control of security and, and the borders. That's his solution. You mentioned Joe Biden and his intervention in the dispute. But it's been pretty clear, as you've written, that the Biden administration is very keen not to get deeply involved in the Middle East and to break with this trend of US governments being either deliberately or just sucked into the process of Middle East peacemaking. Do you think that's sustainable? Do you think you can get away with it? Well, the overall approach of the Biden administration to the Middle East generally can be summarized in those words, calm things down. And uh, that is all because they want to focus on their other priorities, whether it's China and so did Russia, climate change, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with nuclear proliferation challenges, and so on. So uh, while they pay lip service to the two-state solution, they're very clear that they're not looking at an attempt to restart final status negotiations, because they don't believe that in the current circumstances they can lead anywhere. 
I mean, what about the domestic politics of it? Because one thing that does seem to be shifting is that the Democratic Party, Biden's own party, seems deeply divided on this issue with still a bedrock of strong supporters of Israel, but also on the progressive wing or whatever you want to call it, that the left, increasingly vocal support for the Palestinians, a willingness even to use the term apartheid about Israel. How much of a problem is that for Biden simply in terms of party management? It's a problem. I mean, I don't remember when we've had a crisis like this in which there's been such loud condemnation coming from Capitol Hill of Israeli policies. And the fact that it's coming from the ruling party, the Democratic Party, its progressive wing, that seeks to connect what they say, Palestinian lives matter and black lives matter, is, I think, indicative of a trend that has been developing for some time in the Democratic Party, but now has full-throated expression. And the impact is spreading to even the real stalwarts of the U.S.-Israel relationship within the Democratic Party. So you had, for instance, Senator Menendez from New Jersey. You don't get a stronger supporter of Israel than Bob Menendez. And he came out and criticized Israel. Chuck Schumer was quiet about it. Senator Ossoff from Georgia, Jewish senator, introduced a letter with, I think, 25 signatures from senators also criticizing Israel. So I think all of these things are indicative of the fact that Israel no longer enjoys the kind of bipartisan support on Capitol Hill that had been taken for granted for decades. And that is, I think, a product of two things. Number one, Netanyahu's policies that have become deeply unpopular with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party on the one side. The other trend is a longer-term trend where support for Israel has gone dramatically up on the Republican side because of the role of evangelicals who are staunch supporters of Israel and has gone dramatically down over time on the Democratic side for all the reasons we're just discussing. So you now have a 40-point spread between Republican support for Israel and Democratic support for Israel. And that inevitably manifests itself on Capitol Hill and inevitably creates a headache for President Biden. Does it also create a headache for Prime Minister Netanyahu? I mean, you know, if you get a important section of American opinion which is deeply out of sympathy with Israel, should he be concerned? And is he, as you kind of seem to me to imply, partly at fault? Because in previous episodes, he's aligned himself so closely with the Republicans uh, over Iran and so on. He's almost invited a backlash, hasn't he? Yes, I think some of the blame does go to Netanyahu. He bet on the Republicans. He made that very clear when he travelled to Washington and organised behind the back of President Barack Obama speech to the Congress, calling on the Congress to oppose the President. That was the big break that occurred. But he's been betting on the Republicans for some time and on the evangelicals over the American Jewish community. We've just had his former ambassador, Ron Derber, make the argument that Israel should rely on the evangelicals because American Jews aren't reliable anymore. And this kind of forsaking of the American Jewish community, that 
represent one of the pillars of the Democratic Party, and one of the reasons why the Democratic Party supports Israel is very short-sighted, and he was warned repeatedly that elections could bring the Democrats to power, and then what is he going to do? And now he uh, reaps the whirlwind. But I suppose, you know, if, if you're sitting in Netanyahu's shoes in, in Jerusalem, it's probably, at the moment, a relatively minor concern, given that he's he's got a court case, he's just had this war, and he also, perhaps because of this American semi-withdrawal from the Middle East, is thinking about a number of international actors, isn't he? He's thinking about the Saudis, the Russians, and others. To be sure. But when the chips are down, as was clear again in this crisis, Israel is highly dependent upon the United States, most importantly for political support, for blocking anti-Israel action in the Security Council, for standing up for Israel's right to defend itself when all of Israel's would-be friends are either silent or criticizing it. And then, you know, there was a very interesting statement by President Biden, along with everything else he said after the crisis eased. He said that the United States would refurbish Israel's iron dome anti-missile rockets. And that just kind of underscored another basic reality, that Israel needs the United States for that security assistance, for that resupply. And for the first time, a resolution was introduced to stop the provision of various munitions to Israel. Uh, I don't believe that there's any sentiment in Congress to make that actually happen. But it's a bellwether. It's an indicator. And I think not only does Netanyahu know that he needs a strong and close relationship with the United States, but the Israeli people know it, and he will be punished electorally if he doesn't find a way to manage the relationship with the Democrats better than he's been doing. Do you think for the moment, though, it kind of suits him to have a Biden administration that isn't that interested in getting involved? Or would he like to see an America that retains its sort of central focus on the Middle East? I think it's a good question, and I'm not sure what the answer is. I think it works both ways for him. Because an, a Biden administration that is focused elsewhere has got to look to its regional partners in the Middle East to pick up the slack. And there's only one regional partner who's really capable in that arena, and that's Israel. I'm talking about its military capabilities in the security arena. You know, Egypt is in strategic hibernation. Saudi Arabia is highly problematic, and there. It has a real problem with Congress, and it's facing essentially an arms embargo from the United States. So I think that he probably calculates that the more the United States looks elsewhere, the more it's going to look to Israel to help in the region. But let me add again, the Biden administration is looking to its regional partners to calm things down, and that's the role Joe Biden needs Bibi Netanyahu to play. He did not play that role in Jerusalem when he provided the spark that produced this conflagration. And so there come some conditions and requirements when it comes to a new partnership with an America that's looking elsewhere and an Israel that's expected to act responsibly. 
And finally, I mean, just taking a couple of steps back, you've been involved in this U.S.-Israeli relationship for decades now. I think you start in an official role in the Clinton administration. You were various the ambassador to Israel, peace negotiator. You know, looking at it in the broader perspective, do you think that given, as you said, the difficulty of making peace, do you have some sympathy with Biden's efforts to step back? Do you think in the long run, do you remain committed to the idea that the US has to get involved and try to sort this out? Or is it something that it's correct to put on the back burner for a while now? Oh, I I do think it's correct to focus on our interests elsewhere that are of a higher priority, because there's not an opportunity to really help achieve peace between Israel and the Palestinians at the moment. And so what we need to do is adopt an approach that is focused on trying to rebuild confidence, rebuild trust, but is really a slow, incremental, step-by-step approach to creating conditions or helping to create conditions down the road that would enable a return to final status negotiations. The United States' role is very important, but unless the parties themselves decide that they want to resolve this conflict, American willpower alone cannot do it for them. That's the lesson of four presidents' efforts to try to resolve this conflict since the days of the Clinton administration. And it's certainly the lesson that I take back from my own experience out there when I was in charge of the negotiations in 2013-2014. So I think that it's a question of a ripening process that we can help with while focusing on, on other issues. In the end, I do think that the United States is an indispensable player, but we've got to shift the responsibility to the Israelis and the Palestinians and not act as some deus ex machina who's going to come in, wave a magic wand or bang heads together and produce a solution. That doesn't work. We tried it many times and it's time to try something that is going to be more productive over time. Martin Indyk, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. That was Martin Indyk of the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 